Hello, this is Andrea Walton, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the Friday, June 9th, and Saturday, June 10th issues of the Batavia Daily News on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Friday's paper, the front page, has some adorable pictures of some kindergartners. One picture, a young boy by the name of Nikolai Huber, is holding a chicken. It's an endearing photo of him gazing at the chicken. And then down below, there's two young boys that are racing on stick horses. And the title of the article is Learning on the Farm. Kinder farming gives a glimpse of ag and pavilion. The glow region and farming go together like peanut butter and jelly. So what better way to acquaint youngsters with the region's biggest industry than kinder farming? The 40-plus year event was slated to bring kindergarten students from 10 area school districts Wednesday to Hildeen Farms. Attendance was whittled down significantly due to the Canadian wildfires, but farming itself involves overcoming unexpected obstacles. Eight of the ten schools had to pull out at the last minute due to air quality, but ag doesn't stop, do we, said Natasha Sutherland of the Genesee County Farm Bureau, which organized the event. The farms still go and the cows are still getting milked. Hay is still being harvested and these kids are still getting educated. So we're grateful to the schools that chose to come and participate. The dairy operation gave students a fun and close-up glimpse of the ins and outs of farming. They could take a look at a dairy farm or visit any number of stations set up with ag-related games and activities. The fun could involve anything from petting goats and rabbits to generating electricity with a 4-H energy bike to making fun snacks. The students also got to learn about numerous other dairy careers. Sutherland thanked the volunteers and producers who annually help make kinder farming a reality. She said it's their ingenuity and passion that they love to highlight, showing the youngsters how could agriculture how good agriculture is and how amazing to live in New York State's breadbasket. As a matter of fact, kinder farming has been recognized by the American Farm Bureau Federation as event of excellence. Kinder farming is set to return to Hildeen Farms next summer most likely without the unexpected weather difficulties that reduce Wednesday's turnout. Next year, the 5th of June, we're going to have approximately 650 kids back on this dairy farm, Sutherland said. We're hoping to make it as big and as beautiful as possible. Looks like the kids had a really good time. And I know the, Hill, the Hildeen Farms, the family that runs that, they are wonderful people. Two firefighters gained skills. I had to read this article because one of the firefighters is a young gentleman that used to work with me. Two City of Batavia firefighters were among 37 new graduates of the Recruiter Firefighting Training Program. Ronald Kleinbeck and Michael Fendler completed a 15-week residential program that provided extensive fire service training in an environment like a full-time fire department, according to a statement from the State Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Services, which sponsors the program. Graduates came from 17 departments throughout the state. I extend my hearty congratulations to today's graduates on their achievement, and I wish them well as they are well prepared to help protect New Yorkers from fire danger and other emergencies, Commissioner Jackie Bray said during ceremonies at the State Office of Fire Prevention and Controls Academy of Fire Science in Montour Falls. Training first responders is a core mission of ours, and we take great pride in training future firefighters. We are extremely proud of today's graduates for completing a challenging 15-week residential training program and know they will do an outstanding job protecting the public in the future. Graduates participated in more than 600 hours of training. 
both in the classroom and in the field. Classes focused on structural, vehicle, and flammable liquid firefighting, emergency vehicle operations, hazardous material emergency incident, and basic rescue technician operations. Recruits also participate in daily physical fitness training in preparation for the candidate physical ability test. Upon completion, graduates will have received national certification from the National Board of Fire Service Professional Qualifications in Firefighter 1, Firefighter 2, Fire and Life Safety Educator 1, and Hazardous Materials Operations. The next Recruit Firefighter Training Program, the 88th, begins on July 31st. So congratulations to Mr. Kleinbeck and Mr. Fendler. Next, we have a veteran who is driving a lawnmower pulling a wagon, and he's dressed up as Uncle Sam for the Memorial Day Parade. A Byron veteran portrays Uncle Sam. For the last four Memorial Days, Byron has enjoyed a visit from Uncle Sam. Joe Rigi, age 80, an Air Force veteran and 40-year resident of Byron, has been portraying Uncle Sam through the town. Rigi first had the idea during the pandemic when Byron's annual Memorial Day Parade, and almost everything else, was canceled. He borrowed the costume, which was handmade by Laura Platt, and in his garage he decorated his riding lawnmower and wagon with red, white, and blue ribbon, patriotic banners, and the American flag. He secured two large speakers into the red wagon and connected a computer preloaded with patriotic music and headed out mid-morning. He drove up and down all the town streets, blasting his music and waving to neighbors. His one-man parade was a much-needed happy sight and offered a sign of normalcy during such a dark period when the world shut down. In 2021, Rigi continued his one-man Memorial Day appearance. Then in 2022, he joined in on the Memorial Day parade, as well as the pandemic-postponed Byron Bicentennial Parade in July. This year, although recovering from knee replacement surgery, Rigi decorated his lawnmower and wagon once again, purchased candy, donned the Uncle Sam costume, and lined up for the parade. As someone who loves people, especially children, Rigi chose to be the final entry in last month's Memorial Day Parade. Being at the end gave him plenty of time to weave his wagon from side to side along the parade route, giving a piece of candy to each and every child. Becoming Uncle Sam for a day comes naturally to Rigi as he has always been patriotic. Although only age 17, the very day after graduating from Leroy High School, he was on a plane headed to Texas, where he began his five-year stint in the Air Force. Rigi was stationed in Limestone, Maine for his entire service. His base was just a few miles from the Canadian border. His assignment was Strategic Air Command. Those five years were a very tense time in United States history. Between the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Cold War, Rigi's job of keeping B-52 bombers and other aircraft in tip-top shape was critical, as his was the closest base to Russia. Rigi has always been a good citizen and neighbor in his little town of Byron. For many years during the Halloween and Christmas holidays, you could find his lawn decorated with 10 or more blow-up figures. On Halloween Eve, Rigi would set up a huge movie screen in the side yard of his old Victorian home. Rigi, along with his two wiener dogs, all dressed in costumes, handed out candy while playing a scary movie for the children and their parents to enjoy. Caring for his invalid wife, precluded Rigi from being an active member of the town's fire department. However, Rigi found a way to assist by becoming the Byron Fire Department staff photographer. He also has helped in many ways with department fundraisers. When asked, Rigi volunteered 
to head up Byron's Monthly Euchre Tournament, which donates proceeds to the Byron Summer Rec Program. In 2010, Pat Imon, volunteer coordinator of Genesee County's Adults with Developmental Disabilities Dances in Byron, asked Reggie if he would volunteer to take photos for a very special event she had planned. That was the first Stardust Ball, a prom complete with corsages and formal wear. Reggie agreed and happily arrived dressed in a suit with a camera and tripod under his arm. He enjoyed the event so much he showed up with his camera every month until the dances ended in 2016. Rigi is happiest when he serves others, Iman said, but he's always had the wish to go with his peers to Washington, D.C. with the Honor Flight Program. On Sunday, while sitting with other veterans at the Geneseo Air Show, Rigi was put on a waiting list for a future flight. He does not know when that trip will happen, but until then, and once his knee is completely healed, you can find him every Tuesday and Thursday morning volunteering at Batavia's VA Hospital. He sounds like a wonderful man with a big heart. The Maz Marathon is to continue. Brett Sabarski doesn't want to disrupt his rhythm and routine. The retired police sergeant from Rochester, who has run a marathon every day for the past 47 through eight states, will complete two extra runs on buffer days built into his original plan of only 48. I just can't see taking two days off at this point, Sabarski said after Thursday's marathon. I feel great. I don't want to risk it. It doesn't make sense to take two days off because my body will start to heal, making it very hard to run during that process. This isn't a test of manhood, but a very logical and strategic thing to do. Sabrisky, age 56, started running from Palatka, Florida on April 23rd to honor murdered Rochester police officer Anthony Mazurkowitz, who was killed while on duty July 21st of 2022. The effort is raising money for the Mazurkowitz family and is backed by Fleet Feet Rochester and the Locust Club, the Rochester Police Union. Officer Mazurkowitz served 29 years with RPD and could have retired in 2013. He kept working as a member of RPD's tactical unit because he believed in its efforts in drug-prone neighborhoods, specifically finding homicide suspects, what he was doing when he was killed, one year before his planned retirement. Known for laughter and a salty demeanor, the decorated officer had a natural ability to talk with people so they might see police officers as humans. Mazurkowitz is survived by his wife Lynn, four children, three grandchildren, his parents, a sister, and a brother. The fundraising run, dubbed Eight States for Maz, took Sobriski through Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and now New York. Friends, family, and colleagues crew for him. Eight is the number designated of the RPD tactical unit, and that's why he chose eight states. Obituaries on Friday included Paul D. Strogan, age 81, of Daly City, California, but formerly of Batavia. Moving on to Friday's sports. Building Champions. Attica is now a titan of Section 5 track and field. Having a program's boys and girls teams win Section 5 track and field titles in the same season is special. To do it two years in a row is a thing of legend. Five titles in three years? Time to rewrite the record books. Attica completed quite the accomplishment this spring when the Blue Devils recorded a sweep of team titles at the Class B2 championships. For the girls, it was their third straight championship, and for the boys, their second in a row. Attica girls coach Adam Lanfair 
having been a part of the program since 2009, has seen it all when it comes to Blue Devils track and field. Throughout his time at the helm, which included a run as head coach of both the boys and girls teams from 2013 to 2022, Landfair has seen plenty of athletes set themselves apart as some of the best that Section 5 has had to offer. However, for much of that time, Attica found it challenging to put things all together to produce team success. We went through many years of mediocre seasons, said the Blue Devils head coach. We had some success in the Genesee region, but always underperformed at sectionals. We had some high-end athletes throughout those years, which was a lot of fun celebrating their individual success. But the success we have experienced together as a team the past few years has been unmatched with anything we've experienced in the past. For many years, Attica had hosted home meets on an outdated track, offering little in terms of glitz and glamour, surrounding a program that had never produced a Section 5 team title. That all changed at the start of the 21 campaign, when the Blue Devils were graced with a new track within the school's state-of-the-art stadium, Alumni Field, which suddenly presented a centerpiece for the program when attracting prospective athletes to join the track and field squad. Kids love being at our facility now, said Landfear. Being able to host big meets, including sectionals, creates a sense of pride in your school, and kids want to be a part of that. Since a new track was constructed the same year the girls' team won its first championship, the program has welcomed an influx of athletes, many of which have played significant roles in helping the team produce several titles over the past three seasons. The boys' team went from nine total athletes during the 21 season to 22 athletes the following year, while the girls' squad has also seen an increase in numbers. The sudden growth, says Landfear, was aided in part due to the addition of the new track along with the girls' team's success the year prior. The last three years, we've just been dealt with really good kids, and the success and atmosphere that we've grown here just continues to recycle itself, and it's becoming a snowball type of deal, said the Attica head coach. One of the athletes that the team has welcomed into the fold in recent seasons Senior Simon Lamparelli joined the track and field program during his junior year and quickly made a name for himself as one of the top sprinters, not only on his team or within the Genesee region, but all Section 5 in New York State. This weekend, Lamparelli heads to Middletown with a few of his teammates, where the crew will compete in the 4x400-meter relay with a team holding the first seed within Division Two, and Lamparelli competing in the 400-meter dash where he is seeded second. Lamparelli is one of the many athletes that, while joining the track and field program late in their athletic development, have stepped right in to help the Blue Devils match up with and surpass some of the other top programs within their classification. The new athletes were forced to transition quickly to another sport, but many have done so seamlessly. I think throughout the year, we grew very close relationship bonds, and I think that really matters when it comes to a big team sport like track, says Lamparelli. We all trusted each other and performed very well, and when someone was down, one person would perform better. That's been the most significant factor in Attica's success on both the boys' and girls' side, as despite having just two individual athletes finish with sectional championships this spring, Lamparelli in the 400-meter dash and Ashley Tyrone in the pentathlon, both teams reached the top of the mountain behind a Herculean team effort. The Attica girls added a victory in the 4x400-meter relay, while several other athletes finished within the scoring in their respective events. The Blue Devils' strength over the past few seasons has been in the numbers they've generated within boys' and girls' rosters, 
allowing them to develop great depth in almost every event. When one component of our points was down, someone else was making it up with the throwing or the jumping, she said. The heart these boys and girls exhibit in terms of their competitive spirit was just unmatchable when it came to on sectional day. One name synonymous with the success Attica has experienced over the past number of years has been Skylar Savage, a fierce competitor in various events throughout the Blue Devils' run to three consecutive championships. Now a senior, Savage is confident those who come after her will continue the program's success into the future. Just to keep growing their depth and to keep getting those titles, keep hanging the banners up on the wall, keep stacking the blocks in the case, said Savage on the goals for the program moving forward. Just keep that winning energy moving forward and just have a goal each season. There isn't really much more than going to states, but this is nice, too, pointing to the sectional block. Just aim for that. While reflecting on how far the program and his athletes have come over the years, Landfear couldn't help but display great joy. It's definitely becoming a really exciting environment, and we're fortunate to have everything that we have, he said. From the facility, to our parents, to the community members, and all the way down to the kids, we're very blessed right now. Very blessed. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Batavia Daily News on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Moving on to Saturday's paper. We're moving right along today. There wasn't too much in sports because I think with the with the year coming to an end, sports is winding down. On Saturday's paper, the front page has a picture of a Mercy Flight helicopter. And the title of the article is Let's Dedicate This Bird to Jim. Mercy Flight's new Bell 429 helicopter was introduced on Thursday. Margaret Ferentino says she has been fortunate to participate in many of the dedications when Mercy Flight introduced new aircraft into its fleet. These events brought a sense of excitement, accomplishment, and satisfaction in knowing that the continued growth and improvements to our program would only bring good things to helicopter EMS response and the patients in need throughout our region and beyond, the Mercy Flight president said. However, for her, Thursday's dedication was a bit different from the past because it was bittersweet. She and others were at Mercy Flight Thursday to dedicate a new Bell 429 helicopter to the memory of James E. Sauer. Yes, there is the excitement and accomplishment that comes with acquiring and dedicating a new aircraft, but also the sad reality as to why this acquisition was necessary. Ferentino said, As sad as it can be in one way, today is about moving forward. As we do, I can't think of a better way to dedicate this aircraft than by doing so in memory of our pilot, Jim Sauer. Sauer, age 60, of Churchville, a Mercy Flight pilot, was participating in a training mission April 26, 2022, when the helicopter crashed off of Norton Road in Elba. Sauer and Bell Helicopter Flight Instructor Stuart M. Dietrich, age 60, of Prosper, Texas, were killed in the crash. They were the helicopter's only occupants. Ferentino thanked those who were involved in helping Mercy Flight to acquire the helicopter, they included Director of Flight Operations Dennis Crandall, Director of Aircraft Maintenance Alan Lederhouse, and Director of Medical Operations Mike Luzia. Last but not least, a sincere thank you to our Board of Directors for their support and to all of our employees for their patience and support 
as we face the challenges that came with the reduction in aircraft resources we have experienced, she said. Mercy Flight Executive Vice President Scott Wooten said this is just the third aircraft dedication he's done in the 12 years he's been with Mercy Flight. It's a special day for me that I'm going to remember forever, so thank you for all being a part of it, he told those gathered. If I attempted to thank each and every individual who has contributed to this day, I'd be here well past my retirement. Nevertheless, Wooten said he wanted to thank everyone who was there for the dedication for their unwavering support during a difficult couple of years at Mercy Flight. We've banded together, we've weathered the storm, and I couldn't be prouder of what we've accomplished together as we work to get back on our feet operationally and emotionally, he said. I especially want to give credit to our ground ambulance employees whose extremely hard work has stabilized us financially as we've been limited to two and sometimes just one air ambulance base. While Mercy Flight's air ambulance operation has had to turn down calls for lack of ambulance availability, its ground ambulance employees have stepped up like never before and have worked to keep its commitments to our communities and to keep it financially on track, he said. Wooten also thanked Leaderhouse and his crew for keeping the fleet in tip-top shape. M&T Bank and USDA Rural Development and the close relationship Mercy Flight has with both of those organizations. The executive vice, vice president said Sauer was among those smiling down on Thursday's dedication. I want to recognize and thank the members of Jim's family for being here. Marie, his wife, Joss and Lori, his son and daughter, as we remember him and dedicate our brand new helicopter in his memory, he said. We've never dedicated a helicopter to an individual before, but I can't think of a better way to honor Jim. He was such a special, selfless, and admirable man. A member of the family, USDA Rural Development State Director for New York, Brian Murray, gave Mercy Flight USDA's best wishes for its new Bell 429 helicopter. While circumstances surrounding the reason for this new bird don't need repeating, it's only fair that the dedication be honored to pilot, to pilot James Sauer, who had previously served with Mercy Flight, Murray said. I know as a fellow first responder myself, being a volunteer firefighter and also medical staffer, the camaraderie and sense of family is strong. Obviously, it's evident here with Mercy Flight. Sauer was part of that family, Murray said. It's that family that gets you through tough times. It takes a team to provide services that you do, from the front office to the mechanics, to the pilots, and to the medical staff. Together, you provide needed emergency services to rural New York and to communities, which is second to none, he said. Let's dedicate this bird to Jim, Murray said in closing his remarks. How much does a Bell 429 cost? Once you all roll all the direct and indirect costs together, you're probably north of $9 million, a very significant investment, Wooten said after the ceremony. That's what we appreciate so much about M&T and USDA being there for us. We don't have $9 million sitting in a checking account. The USDA, not only do they loan half the amount to acquire it, but they provide a guarantee for the portion that M&T loans. That allows M&T to take the period in which the loan is repaid out to 20 years. We're making smaller monthly payments that are affordable for us, as opposed to a typical commercial craft loan that would be just seven years. The monthly payment on a seven-year $9 million loan is just not something we're able to cover. What's next for the new helicopter? Wooten said there is about a week of differences training for personnel before the new Bell 429 is put into service. There are just some minor variations from these ships 
that were from 2019 to this month, the new aircraft. <coughs> Pardon me. Four years worth of technology development. So there's a little bit of training that our pilots need just to ensure that they understand what's different in this helicopter versus the others. Wooten said Mercy Flight hopes to put the new helicopter into service next weekend. It arrived at Mercy Flight about a month ago. He said that while on vacation, he got messages that the helicopter had arrived and was excited about the news since Mercy Flight had been waiting for so long. It had to immediately go into an annual inspection. This airframe actually came off the factory line in June 2022, he said. Each year, you have to perform an annual maintenance period on those helicopters. After the inspection, Mercy Flight had to have a Federal Aviation Administration inspection so the FAA knew it would be ready for service. Wooten said the new Bell 429 was as identical as possible to the other two helicopters in the fleet. It's the best model for us in terms of capacity, in terms of power, and certainly in terms of safety. It's got a lot of bells and whistles, he said. There are so many inherent safety features on this aircraft. There's so much that goes into this machine that makes it the best for our operation, both from a pilot standpoint and our med crews. Wooten said a fourth helicopter will be joining the fleet as soon as possible, perhaps in about 45 to 60 days, with a dedication ceremony of its own. So that's quite an accomplishment, and we certainly all remember the tragic accident that took Jim's life and the other trainer from Texas. There is a free fishing event that's planned at DeWitt Park. Genesee County Parks and the Oakfield, Alabama Lions Club will help people try out fishing June 24th at the DeWitt Recreation Area. The event will take place 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Pavilion No. 2. It is part of the state's free fishing weekend and no fishing license is required. Friendly guides will be available to assist participants. Fishing gear and bait are provided or people can bring their own. Hot dogs, chips, and water will be for sale with all proceeds benefiting the Oakfield Alabama Alliance Club. Young people up to 16 years old can join the fun and get the chance to win a prize for catching the biggest fish. Call 585-344-1122 to register. Walk-ins are also welcome. Check Genesee County Parks, Recreation, and Forestry on Facebook for more information. Celebration of Italian Culture, the Annual Banquet Awards honor Agnabine and Saracini. This year's Palo Busti Cultural Foundation Awards Banquet took place without one of its loyal supporters, Catherine K. Agnabine. Despite her absence, the Cultural Foundation found a way to honor her with a one-time scholarship. While helping to present the K. Agnabine Memorial Scholarship, Charlie Messina talked about how proud everyone was of the 96-year-old who passed away on January 30th. She was still making sauce at 95 in the basement, still making homemade macaroni. She was just doing everything she could still do at 95 years old, he said. It's an honor just to be up here and talking about her. She was such a big proponent of Paolo Basti. She thought everyone in the world of it, everything in the world of it. She used to call me and talk to me about it. Messina said some of the banquet may have bought houses from Agda, being a longtime realtor in the Batavia area, or worked with her in real estate. They know what kind of person she was. Generous. She was a loving, loving person. The scholarship went to Notre Dame High School graduate Kaylee Crotts, daughter of John and Jill Crotts. She plans to attend SUNY Cortland and major in early childhood education. Crotts participated in Environmental Action Club and LE3, 
She was an after-school summer camp activity coordinator in 9th through 12th grade and participated in chorus at Notre Dame. She volunteered at St. Joseph's Regional School for various fundraisers and at the Notre Dame High School office. Kratz said she will always cherish her family's loving care and support. I am honored to be here celebrating my Italian heritage with all of you tonight. Thank you to my family for being here along with me, she said on Wednesday. Outstanding Italian American. Agda Bean had a special place in the heart of this year's Outstanding Italian American honoree, James R. Saracini, who said as much after being introduced by his daughter, Alexandra Zielinski. Kay Agnabin was responsible for getting me onto the board of the Cultural Foundation. Where I went into the mortgage business, she was one of the first realtors to reach out to me. When she was questioned by her broker, why did you go to this guy? He's new. She says, well, I knew the family from way back. That was Kay Agnabin. She was wonderful. Saracini, whose grandparents Arthur and Emilia Sacchio Saracini, immigrated to America from Italy. He has strong Italian roots that have shaped his life and earned him the Paolo Basti Cultural Foundation's Award for Outstanding Italian American. His maternal grandparents, Baggio and Anna Belushi, also came to America in the early 1900s, the son of Thomas and Louise Belushi Saracini. James Saracini grew up on the south side of Batavia. He is a 1980 graduate of Batavia High School, attending Genesee Community College and the State University of Buffalo. He has worked in the banking and real estate business for the past 37 years. For the past 24 years, he has been a loan officer. Since 2014, he has worked for Prime Lending. He and his wife, Christine Antinor, for 33 years. They have two daughters, Samantha, Cody Ruland, and Alec, Doug Zielinski, and a granddaughter, Finley Christine Zielinski. Saracini served on the Paolo Busti Board of Directors for 15 years. He was the Cultural Foundation's treasurer. Saracini said his family's history was no different than that of thousands of other Italian immigrants who left their homeland for a better life. I was doing a little research and I was reading where Italian immigrants who migrated from Italy to the United States between 1880 and 1920, an estimated 4 million mostly Southern Italians arrived at U.S. shores during these years. The Italians primarily came seeking economic opportunities they could not find at home. Vincent G. Gautieri Memorial Scholarship Batavia High School senior Michael Anthony Marchese was called up to receive this honor. Gautieri's daughter, Vicki Johnson, noted her dad founded Batavia Tailors and Cleaners in 1952. He worked hard six days a week. He never took for granted his accomplishments, and he was always looking for ways to improve the business, both for his employees and his customers, she said. He encouraged people to push themselves, to not just settle for getting by. Loyalty to family and friends, hard work and tradition were the foundation of Dad's way of life. Her dad passed away December 30, 2009. We knew right away that the best way to keep his memory alive and honor him was to sponsor the Vincent G. Gautieri Memorial Scholarship, Johnson said. He believed in the value of education. He taught his children the value of a strong work ethic and encouraged us to use our education to be independent and make a difference. A senior at Batavio High School, he is the son of Paul and Sandra Marchese. He will attend Paul Smith College to study environmental science. Marchese was inducted into the National Honor Society and received service and academic excellence awards in his sophomore year. He is completing his Eagle Scout Award by participating in the Boy Scouts BSA 12 years, senior patrol leader and assistant patrol leader. He also participated for two years in the National Leadership Training. 
Marchese volunteers for the Rotary Club Fly and Breakfast, Student Council, Boy Scouts fundraisers, and community service programs. I'm really just thankful to be here. I'm proud to be here with my family, he said. My favorite part of being an Italian-American is my family, the values of just a strong family. Scholarship recipients. Three other scholarship recipients were Aiden Chow, Sean Zareka, and Cooper James Fix. With Fix receiving $1,000 of Grand Scholar, the foundation said the other seniors each received a $500 scholarship. Fix, a senior at Batavia, is the son of Aaron and Kristen Fix. He has been accepted at SUNY Oswego to major in exercise science physical therapy. Fix was inducted into National Honor Society for 8th through 12th grades. He has been a member of National Art Honor Society since his junior year of high school. He has participated in a link crew, swimming, football, track and field, tennis, and success for strength. Chow, a senior at Batavia High School, is the son of Allison and David Chow. He will graduate summa cum laude June 24th and then plans to attend Genesee Community College before going on to a four-year college. He plans to be a theology major and wants to become a screenwriter. Zurika attends Leroy Junior Senior High School and will attend Hillborough College in Tampa, Florida, majoring in general studies. He participated in soccer, baseball, football, basketball, chorus, drama club, and peer counseling. A member of St. Joseph's Parish in Leroy and Our Lady of Mercy Roman Catholic Church, he volunteers as an Eagle Star in DePaul and is a blood donor. So there's some of our excellent graduates that have earned some nice honors. You are listening to a series of readings and articles for the Batavia Daily News on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. High schoolers earn GCC degrees. Academic Challenge. Students completed STEM and other tough courses. A group of 13 students from area high schools and home schools received special mention during Genesee Community College's commencement. The students completed their GCC degree requirements concurrently with their high school diplomas or New York State high school equivalency. Twelve had participated in the college's science, technology, engineering, and math enrichment program. The STEM enrichment program began in 2012, allowing the students to start their college studies as early as the seventh grade. In addition to their traditional schoolwork, they enrolled in college-level coursework each year, taking advantage of academic opportunities and successfully completing all the challenges involved. The graduates included, included Jaden Brummett of Oakfield, Jacob DeBotts of Warsaw, Lydia Evans of Batavia, Megan Balakowski of Attica, homeschoolers Grace Gregoire and Abigail Lamphere. Ada McClurg of Alba, Emma McLaughlin of Perry, Sophia Ultramari of Buffalo Seminary, Lauren Reamer of Batavia, Zoe Shepard of Byron Virgin, and Andrea Strobe of Notre Dame. Audrey Pask of Albion did not take part in the STEM enrichment program, but she earned a GCC degree alongside her high school diploma. We are extremely proud of these 12 exceptional students who have not only earned their high school diplomas, but also completed their GCC degree requirements through our STEM enrichment program, said Director Ann Valentino of Accelerated College Enrollment Programs in a news release. Their dedication and hard work demonstrate the power of early college enrollment and the opportunities it provides. They are truly an inspiration to future generations of students. To view the ceremony, 
visit www.genesee.edu slash commencement. Pretty impressive students, that's for sure. Moving to sports Saturday. We're moving along quickly today. Again, there seems to be a lack of local news, so I'm going to finish up with some other things. But for right now, we're going to talk about the end of the road. The Irish rarely fall short in the semifinals. Notre Dame gave Section 2's Chatham all it could handle in the New York State Public High School Athletic Association Class C semifinals on Friday at Maine and Well High School. But in the end, the defending Class C state champions were just too much for the Fighting Irish. Tyler Neller tossed a complete game and was able to bounce back from one rough inning while Chatham scored a pair of runs in the bottom of the fifth to take the lead for a good in route to a 7-4 victory and a place in the state championship game on Saturday. If anyone told us back in March that we were going to be 23-2 and playing here today against this team, we played them all the way to the end. I couldn't be prouder, Notre Dame head coach Rick Rapone said. Neller, who will be competing next season at Division II College of St. Rose, allowed seven hits but just two earned runs while he walked just one and struck out four on the day. Neller got the best of Notre Dame senior Bryston Berry, who also had one bad inning that was aided by a controversial call that went against the Fighting Irish. Barry went five innings and allowed five hits, three earned runs, and he walked four while he struck out just two. After the first two innings went relatively quietly, the Panthers were able to get to Barry in the third. Jake Taylor led off with a triple to right field, and with one out, Matt Thorson bounced back to Barry on the mound. But when the Notre Dame pitcher slipped on the wet turf, his throw home to try and nail Taylor went wide, giving Chatham a 1-0 lead. On the play, Thorson was thrown out, trying to advance to second for what would have been the second out of the inning, but he was ruled safe due to an obstruction call at first, which set the Panthers up for more damage. I obviously don't think it was the right call, Rapone said of the obstruction. He would have been out at second, and with two outs, the inning was almost over. Instead, it's a three-run differential. We preach to the kids all the time, don't make errors. Don't walk guys because of how costly they are. You never expect that to happen at a time like this. But to get this game and virtually give four runs to a team of that caliber, that team is really good. That's sports sometimes. It doesn't go, it, it just doesn't go your way. The kids toughed it out. They didn't complain. They couldn't do anything about it. They kept fighting back. They got the four runs back. I'm proud of this team and how far we've come. Cam Horton then dunked a single to center, and Barry would walk Neller to load the bases with just one out as things began to unravel a bit. Barry then got Jamison Bolich to fly out, which would have been the third out if you believe in the fallacy of the predetermined outcome, which scored Thorson to make it 2-0. Logan Smalley then followed with a two-run double in front of Jay Antnor in center that all of a sudden gave Chatham a four-run lead. It was tough pitching with a small strike zone and trying to work the corners, Barry said. But I have no one to blame but myself. They are a good hitting team, and if you only have maybe two strikeouts all game, it's going to be tough to beat them. That's all on me. I've got to do better in that situation. They are a great team, and they're going to hit the ball. We knew that. They won it all last year. We did what we could. The Fighting Irish, though, would bounce right back in the top of the fourth. Ryan Fitzpatrick and Jaden Sherwood singled to lead off the frame, and with one out, Chase Antnor singled to load the bases. 
with two outs, Jordan Walker drew a walk to get Notre Dame on the board. Then it was the Irish's turn to take advantage. Some miscues. Sherwood scored on a wild pitch to make it 4-2, and then on a harmless bouncer back to the mound off the bat of Jimmy Fanara. Neller threw the ball down the right field line, which allowed a pair of runs to score to knot the game at four. With Barry nearing and eclipsing the 100 pitch mark for the day, the Panthers got to the Notre Dame ace again in the fifth. Horton led off with a double to left, and he would go to third on a fly ball to center off the bat of Neller. Bielich then reached on an error before Smalley drove home what would prove to be the game winner with a sacrifice fly to right. Michael Pirro later added an RBI single to put Chatham up too. The Panthers then got an insurance run in the sixth against Sherwood, who was on in relief. Tate Van Alston led off the inning with a walk, and he would eventually come around and score on another controversial call. This one a balk on Sherwood that provided Chatham with a big insurance run. Chatham is now 24-2, and it will meet the winner of Tuckahoe and Little Falls for its second straight championship on Saturday. Notre Dame's spectacular season ends at 23-2. It's very sad the last few years have been great, Barry said. This season means a lot. On paper, we might not have been the best team out of the three years, but these kids have come together, and the young kids have stepped up. They are going to do great. State championships to go on as planned this weekend, for now. The New York State Public High School Association has been provided information from New York State officials that will allow this weekend's NYSPHSAA state championship events to be played as long as the air quality index does not exceed 150. An AQI between 101 to 150 is designated as unhealthy for sensitive individuals and precautionary for others. In this AQI range, it is strongly recommended special attention is given to sensitive individuals, including those with heart or lung disease, older adults, children and teenagers, and those exposed under exertion or for long periods, which includes symptom check-ins, additional rest, and hydration. NYSPHSAA will encourage increased frequency of substitutions, require exertion breaks throughout games, and hydration will be emphasized at state championship event locations with an AQI of 101 to 150. Over the past few days, the AQI throughout New York State has well exceeded 150 as student athletes and teams have prepared for this weekend's state championship events. At this time, NYSPHSAA is moving forward with all spring state championship events as long as the AQI does not exceed 150, said Dr. Robert Zayas, NYSPHSAA Executive Director. This has been a rapidly developing situation over the course of the past 48 to 72 hours. We have relied upon information from New York State officials as we address concerns and make decisions during this unprecedented situation. Student safety and risk minimization remain our top priority. For the most up-to-date information pertaining to NYSPHSAA state championships, reference NYSPHSAA's social media platforms and the website nyspHSAA.org. It's certainly been an unusual week as far as the air quality. We certainly have not seen wildfires like this in our history in quite some time. I believe they said 1950 was the last time Canada had such wildfires that affected the East Coast. Five Albion student-athletes signed to continue careers in college. Albion Central School Senior Signing Day is an annual event that celebrates the accomplishments and future plans of senior athletes. The event, which took place on Wednesday, 
featured five student athletes from Albion Central School announcing their athletic commitments. The students who signed during the event Amari Jones, who committed to playing football at Edinburgh University. Javon Jones, who's committed to playing football at the University at Brockport. Nick Harding, who committed to playing football at Washington and Jefferson College. Samantha Bassinet, who committed to playing soccer at SUNY Cobleskill. And Dallas Ecker, who committed to swimming at Alfred State. Dallas was also recognized as part of the All-Western New York Academic Team and received the 2023 Multi-Sport Student Athlete Award. During Senior Signing Day, the seniors had the opportunity to publicly share their plans with their peers, teachers, and families. Each student took the stage individually, proudly announcing their chosen college, university, athletic program, or career path. The event created a sense of camaraderie and support among the graduating class. The atmosphere of the event was filled with excitement and applause. Students dressed in their college or career attire, symbolizing their commitment to their athletic journey. The event showcased the diverse ambitions within the senior class, emphasizing various athletic pursuits, professional goals, and personal dreams. Senior Signing Day not only celebrated the achievements of the senior athletes, but also served as inspiration for underclassmen. It highlighted the importance of hard work, dedication, and perseverance in achieving success in athletics. The event fostered unity within the school community and encouraged students to set their own athletic goals. The closing message of Senior Signing Day at Albion Central School was one of encouragement and hope. The event marked a significant milestone in the lives of the graduating senior athletes, honoring their accomplishments and generating excitement for their future endeavors. It was a day of reflection, gratitude, and celebration, ensuring that each student's unique athletic path was acknowledged and celebrated with pride and enthusiasm by the entire school community. You are listening to a series of readings and articles from the Batavia Daily News on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Well, that's it for local sports. So I'm going to read an article that I thought was kind of unique. Hitting the Mother Road. Iconic Route 66 is readying for its centennial. Route 66 kind of has a little bit of a a place in my heart, though I've never traveled it, and I have a strong desire to do that at some point. Um, but I know a lot of the unusual fabrications that you'll see along Route 66, large fiberglass structures, were actually made by a personal friend of mine who has a studio called Enchanted Castle in Natural Bridge, Virginia. Um, Mark Klein is a very talented artist, and that's his specialty is fiberglass statues, and he does things all over the country. Uh, everything from Disney World to restaurants to you name it. Um, he does the uh, Yogi Bears for the uh, Jellystone Parks. And I went down to visit him one time and there was all these yogis sitting there looking at me. And it was, it was quite a unique experience. Anyways, to get on with the article, Iconic Route 66 readies for its centennial. From its earliest days, Route 66 has reflected the American culture of the moment. When the road connected Chicago to Los Angeles in 1926, it represented the possibility of the automobile. In the 1930s, it served as an east-to-west escape route from the Dust Bowl during the Great Depression. By the 1950s, the 2,400-mile highway lured travelers with the post-World War II promise of adventure on the open road. And as the era of interstate highway driving dawned, Route 66 began to reflect a yearning for a time when the journey was about more than the destination. 
Now the eight states traversed by America's defining highway are getting it ready for its 100th anniversary in 2026. States are handing our grants to restore vintage neon signs along the highway. They're installing shoulders to make the road safer for bicyclists and improving signage to make the route more obvious through cities. And they're installing charging stations that will make it easier to travel the entire length in an electric vehicle. The iconic highway has always been the ultimate symbol of a restless nation on the move, writes Michael Wallace in Route 66, The Mother Road. The 1990 book that may have saved the once vital thoroughfare from obscurity after it was decommissioned as a federal highway in 1985. That symbolism won't change, even as the vintage highway evolves to meet modern tourism's demands, Wallace said in an interview with Stateline. The world still comes to Route 66, said Wallace, who was appointed last year by President Joe Biden to the Route 66 Centennial Commission, which is planning some of the national events around the anniversary. It's because they can get a taste of this country before it became generic, before it was just littered with cookie-cutter franchise businesses, before it was homogenized. It's a road not so much for tourists as it is for travelers. To that end, many states are planning how they can attract a new generation of travelers to Route 66. The road itself is now the destination. In Illinois, where Route 66 begins and stretches for 300 miles, the state this spring awarded $6.6 million in grants to help communities upgrade and market their Route 66 attractions in advance of the 2026 celebrations. The grants are aimed at boosting local tourism across Illinois, as well as highlighting the state's growing electric vehicle sector. Governor J.B. Pritzker said in a statement, it's a way of honoring the history of Route 66 and looking to the future, Pritzker said. One grant will create pylons at the beginning of the road in Chicago, which will feature QR codes that tell drivers where to find EV charging stations along Route 66. The state money also will pay for interpretive panels at historic sites highlighted in the Negro Motorist Green Book, a guide to the mid-century service stations, motels, and attractions where black travelers were welcomed in segregated states or hostile towns along the nation's highways, including Route 66. And this winter, the city of Edwardsville, Illinois, installed a 12-and-a-half-foot monument along its stretch of Route 66, not far from the Missouri border. The sign, a tilted version of the iconic highway shield, allows visitors to pose inside the round holes made by the number 66. It's a TikTok or Instagram-friendly attraction, tourism officials say, which, as with the emphasis on neon signs, appeals to younger travelers. In Arizona, the state developed the Route 66 Digital Passport, an app that allows travelers to tick off some of the best attractions for posting on social media. The app helped welcome a new generation of road trippers to Arizona during the pandemic, when people sought outdoors and open road experiences, said Joss Coddington, Director of Communications for the state's Office of Tourism. All along the route, towns are recognizing the past, but they're also maintaining the road so that it remains into the future said Riley Mansuti, the Public and Government Affairs Manager for AAA Oklahoma. It remains picture-worthy picture as we're in the age of Instagram or TikTok, she said. A lot of these small towns are, going, are doing a great job at still offering that authentic taste and that step back, but making it appeal to newer generations. In Oklahoma, which has more than 400 miles of Route 66, the road is seen as a major tourism draw, Mansuti said. Tulsa, known as the capital of Route 66, 
last year hosted the AAA Route 66 Road Fest. The party will continue this year and will be among the signature national events for the 2026 Centennial Celebration. It's called the Mother Road for a reason, said Mansuti, who notes that AAA tour guides began publishing the same year as Route 66 became a national road. It's absolutely a symbol of adventure and exploration, and it's a driving force behind promoting tourism in the areas it passes through. In Oklahoma, the State Department of Transportation allows cities and counties to buy giant adhesive stickers to install on sections of the road, an Instagrammable and directional visual aid to make part of Route 66 more accessible to bicyclists. Oklahoma recently received a $1 million federal grant to improve 1.3 miles of the highway near several roadside attractions, including the often photographed Arcadia Round Barn. Rise Martin, president of the Oklahoma Route 66 Association, has traveled and photographed the entire length of the highway from Illinois to California. One of his favorite attractions in Oklahoma is the giant blue whale in Catrusa, a whimsical 20-foot-tall and 80-foot-long roadside attraction built in 1972. There are also dozens of local festivals in towns where Route 66 serves as their main street. If you just make time and get off the interstate, you'll meet all kinds of amazing people and have some really great food and see things that you won't see anywhere else, he said. Route 66 is about the experience. The phrase goes, it's not about getting somewhere, it's about going somewhere. And Oklahoma Highway Commissioner Cyrus Avery pushed tirelessly for Route 66 creation as a federal highway in the 1920s, hopeful that it would divert traffic to Tulsa from other cross-country routes through Kansas City and Denver. By 1939, with the publication of John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath, Route 66 had achieved iconic status. In the book, Steinbeck describes Route 66 as the mother road for how it served as refuge for so many people displaced by the Great Depression and the devastation in the Great Plains of the Dust Bowl years. Route 66 was the path of a people in flight, Steinbeck wrote, refugees from dust and shrinking land. After World War II, an automobile ownership and general prosperity boomed. The highway led to vacation destinations in New Mexico, Arizona, and California. It was then that travelers experienced the heyday of the mom-and-pop motels and diners with architecture and neon signage that defined the peak era of the highway. But over the next few decades, five new interstate highways, Interstate 55, 44, 40, 15, and 10, began replacing Route 66. Although at least 85% of the original road is still drivable, many of the small towns along Route 66 withered away after the interstates arrived, tastes changed, and more people preferred to travel by plane than by car. Nonetheless, Route 66 remains as both a physical highway and in the imagination as the ultimate road trip. In 2006, a new generation was introduced to the highway via the animated Pixar feature, Cars, featuring race car Lightning McQueen and many of the road's noteworthy roadside attractions. Wallace, who voiced Sheriff in Cars, said that despite his longtime association with the road, he's always been wary of overly romanticizing Route 66. It's much more than 57 Chevys and poodle skirts, he said. Well, to finish up today, I will see if I can find Scott B. Smith, because he's always amusing, and see if we can't get a few minutes humor in at the end of this. If you'll bear with me a minute.
I thought I saw it. Scientists solve the cube-shaped dung mystery. It is truly one of the mysteries of life, and one of my biggest fears was that I would die before knowing the answer. Why does a wombat have cube-shaped poops? The first time I came across this phenomenon was during a walkabout in the outback. What's that smell, my guide asked. I don't know. Could be me. I haven't bathed in 12 days, I replied. Check your boots, he said. I did, and lo and behold, I had stepped in dung. I flipped it off with a stick, and it plopped to the ground. Nearby, I noticed a pile of dung, all cube-shaped. That's wombat dung, my guide said. Why is it cubed, I asked. Beats me, he said. I spent the rest of the walk contemplating this mystery, one that has plagued me ever since that fateful day. I hunt and come across poop all the time. I can identify nearly any kind of dung. Rabbits have tiny round-shaped pellets, as do deer, though their poop is more oval in shape. Fox poop is easy, with chunks of semi-digested small furry creatures visible to the naked eye. Never have I come across cube-shaped poop, most likely because finding a wombat in the wilds of western New York is quite rare. Still, I always wondered, why? Now we know, thanks to, who else? A team of university researchers with nothing better to do. In a joint effort by University of Tasmania and Georgia Institute of Technology, the answer is, the wombat's intestines stretch unevenly, creating edges on the poop, leading to cubing. The weird thing is, is that if you open up a wombat, you actually find that the cubes become formed in the lower part of the intestine before they exit the body, one of the authors of the study said. Yes, that is weird. I did not notice that the last time I opened a wombat. To be fair, no wombats were injured during this major study. Instead, scientists used wombats that had been hit by cars in Tasmania and had to be euthanized. Really? Wombats must be one tough marsupial. Anyway, that's what researchers discovered, and it was the highlight of the 71st annual meeting of the American Physical Society's Division of Fluid Dynamics in Atlanta last Sunday. Yes, that is a real thing for 71 years. Basically, around the circumference of the intestine, there are some parts that are more stretchy and some parts that are more stiff, Tasmanian scientist Scott Carver said, and that is what creates the edges in the cubing. Stretchy is my favorite scientific term. The study's author said the findings could have implications beyond the natural world by helping to provide insight into new manufacturing techniques. There is a long history of people looking to the natural world for innovations in human society, Carver said. This potentially reveals another mechanism of producing cube-shaped objects, and in that sense, it could contribute to thinking about manufacturing these sorts of objects in different ways. Finally, a better way to make building blocks. Now, if they can only answer that other lingering mystery of the animal kingdom. If someone eats a Lego piece, how long does it take to uh, exit the system? Thanks to another crack team of Australian scientists, the answer is 1.7 days. Yes, researchers at the University of Melbourne actually did this experiment. Now, only if they could get, figure out why exactly did the chicken cross the road. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the Friday through 9th and Saturday, June 10th issues of the Tabby Daily News. Your reader has been Andrea Walton. Thank you for listening.